Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to put you on the spot right out of the gate. What is your favorite outdoor experience? It could be photography related. It could be work related. It could be right place, right time. Didn't have a camera, didn't have anything, but the thing that sticks in your mind the most. I would say mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Like everybody asked me what was like my most, and it's not something that I post very much of, but definitely I think seeing that human look and personality and they're more relatable to so many people when you see a picture or an image of a gorilla and then standing beside something so big like he could crush me you know but he doesn't he's doing his own thing and after a while you realize there's nothing to really be afraid about they're probably more afraid of us than we are of them and at the end of the day, they just have their own family doing their own thing. They're probably the most captivating creatures I've ever photographed. So for me, tracking them in uh, Rwanda was really awesome. Tell us a little bit about that trip. When did you go and, and then how did you get there? And it was that typical thing where you get to spend like an hour with them and then that yeah. sort of thing. You hike to them, spend an hour, and then you then you leave, right? Yeah, so when I went, it was, the permits were pretty expensive. They were 750 US for the day, um, but now they're 1500, the same area for the same thing. I was backpacking East Africa for a month with another girl. We climbed Kilimanjaro, went diving off the coast of Mafia Island. It was awesome. But I think safaris, I, I always thought that the safaris in Africa would really be that, you know, light for me for wildlife photography and and it wasn't <laughs> I think I was overwhelmed with the number of jeeps that were just and the radios and I was like this isn't what I had in mind you know like it's almost a bit much like I didn't find that ethically that these animals were given that space in Nagorogoro Crater was probably the best because it's so crazy, strictly regulated, where you have a path and you stay on that path. And there there wasn't any radio calling between guides and stuff. Um, but I think in Serengeti and Masamara, it's very much like this crazy amount of tourism. It's very commercialized. Yeah. <laughs> but... Tracking the gorillas, that was that was different, right? Like you carry your camera, we convinced our guide because I did some research and I was like, oh, like I really want to get Sousa family, like the original family that was studied, the largest family, the first family to have a twin birthing that year. They had 41 or 42 in their group, which is massive. So when we got there, we knew that that group wasn't easy to get. Obviously, anybody who did any research would probably want that family, but it is also the hardest family to get to. So we got our guy that goes to the front to kind of mingle with, you know, devying up the groups. And he he convinced them that we were fit enough to, to go and find Susa. We got him. And it was amazing. Like, 42 gorillas, like, we just walked in and we were surrounded like they told tell you to put down your bags 
you're like, okay, we put down our bags in a clearing and then we walk over. He goes over, obviously, all the don't point, keep your distance, all that stuff. But then he's like, okay, we're going to go now. And then within like five minutes, you just look around you and you're, you're surrounded by gorillas. And it was crazy. And I think for anybody who's going, that's probably, I would definitely research the area and the families that you're going to go see and see what you're interested in. Because some families only have like four gorillas, five gorillas, eight gorillas. So that experience would be completely different as well, right? How's that work? How many people like started on the trailhead where you were divvying up the the different spots you were going to go to? Are there like 12 people or are there groups of two or? So each family only sees 10 people per day. And so at the time, I believe there was eight families. I think there's more families now because uh, the Sousa group actually split up into Sousa A and B now. But um, so they let out permits, like 80 permits for the day. So 80 people show up at the trailhead and then they divvy it up into the 10 families or eight families or whatever there is. Very cool. I wish I I paid for more days. I wish... (laughs) I, I crossed over to the Congo and did the low-line gorillas as well, but didn't have enough time. Well, you know, it always takes a little expeditionary trip to figure some of the stuff out too, right? You just don't know. And if you're there and you're just like, oh, hey, let's go do this. Oftentimes it's good to go do it like that, figure it out so that if you make it back, you can plan that trip a little bit better. You can say, oh, yeah, I want to do three days or I want to do the Congo or I want to add this. It's so hard when you get over there and you just don't know all the little particulars. Because I had the same problem in Africa. When you get to the Serengeti, it's like, this is really commercial. You got to wait for gates to open. I didn't never think about, oh, there's a gate that is closed and it doesn't open till 7 a.m. And then if you want to go over here, you know, you can pay a guard or you can pay somebody yeah. to kind of let you go down this road. And, you know, I, we didn't know any of that. But, We didn't spend as much time there. With all that being said, there are some really cool places that you can get to where you don't have any people and there's some really cool reserves. There's some backcountry, And if you're just willing to let that kind of stuff happen, you can have an awesome experience over there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it was my first time in Africa and only time actually so far. I'd love to go back. But everything was kind of planned around Kilimanjaro my friends were like oh we're climbing Kilimanjaro there was I think 10 of us across Canada and the U.S. that met up at our friend's place in Kenya and then everything kind of we did have plans for like let's say chimpanzees and gorillas that we had a book in advance but and a chartered flight to go diving other than that all the plans that we did have were like kind of thrown out the window because people were on different itineraries and they're like we got a great guy for this and we got, why don't you call this guy up? And so many people just literally like took us into their homes as we were backpacking through. <laughs> so definitely I do it a little bit different this time for photography reasons. I'd probably be a little bit more adamant, but it was more of a, like a trip of friends, I guess, where we were just meeting up with people as we were going. I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because I have some questions specific to photography and what you decided to do knowing that you were going to have to walk in and your resources were going to be limited once you got there but first of all let's back up a little bit and introduce you uh jenny wong out of calgary alberta but if you look at jenny's 
portfolio on Instagram. She's been just about everywhere and had opportunity to photograph multiple species, whether, you know, North Pole, South Pole, North America, but uh, in the Arctic for sure. And then uh, also in Africa, like we've just been discussing. So Jenny, before we get back into the gorillas, and I, I want to ask you about the gear and continue to ask about that trip, how did you come to be a wildlife photographer? I guess with you, I have to specify wildlife slash nature photographer because you do a lot of uh, incredible landscape work as well. Um, I think for me, I don't even know if I consider myself a photographer per se, I guess. I think I'm better at storytelling than I am at taking pictures. And I think that comes with loving to travel. And I've always loved to travel. My family loves to travel. So naturally, when you travel, you bring a camera with you. And eventually, it was a lot of just capturing moments and memories. But there comes a point where I'm like, the stories were were just that much more impactful when you can actually show a pretty image. And you take it a little bit more seriously. And you take it a little bit more seriously. And social media has been a lot more accountable, made me a little bit more accountable, I guess. To actually getting those images out processed getting stories put together behind those images or content i think finding what i struggle with i think i've talked to other photographers about it a lot of people are like hiking types they love taking that scenery and they'll go out there and then there's wildlife people that are wildlife people they the most scenery they do is the environmental shot right but for me i'm very all over the place if you look at my portfolio and I think I struggle as a photographer if you put it that way with an identity and I think over time that identity just kind of didn't matter anymore and it was more about a theme of conservation and I think that's really been the motivating factor to to get out there and get more content. Mm -hmm. Well I think as you put it I mean that can be a niche and there's several photographers that I can think of that are kind of in the same lane. But as you look at your work, I get the storytelling thing that you're talking about just because of the types of images that you capture. And not only do you get the wildlife, but you get the environment, you get the social aspects. So you, you do tell the complete story on those trips that you're on. And some of them, you guys need to go take a look because some of these expeditions are epic destinations. And we're talking about mountain gorillas, which... For me, would probably be, I've seen recently, so in, in uh, African hunting safaris, they talk about the big five. But I've seen a lot more photographers now that have talked about the big five for photography. What would that be? And I think the, the mountain gorillas for me would be one of those top five animals worldwide, uh, but especially on the continent of Africa that I would like to photograph and, and just be able to have that experience like you've talked about. I had the opportunity last year to meet Jane Goodall and that just reinforced my <laughs> my desire to to go there and spend time in that in that environment. So let's go back there real quick. When you guys went into the mountain gorillas, you didn't know, you know, what kind of distances you were going to be dealing with necessarily. Did you take a, a wide angle and a zoom or how did you pack for that trip i wouldn't say at that moment in my life i was taking photography as seriously as i do now um i had a really affordable camera at the time it was a nikon d90 <laughs> so 
nothing like what we carry now with full frame, big, heavy thing. Heavier than the Canon Rebel, though. I just had, I think it was a 16 to 85 with me on that trip and a 70 to 300. So it wasn't that big of a deal to bring both of the lenses, really. I only had one body with me, so I literally was like, okay, when we got to that landing, it was kind of like, you need to decide which lens you're going to kind of put on, right? And I just noticed, like, the environment was really, really thick bush. <laughs> so I knew that I was going to be close or close-ish. <laughs> like, you're no either not going to see them, like, the telephoto isn't going to do you any good because the bush is so thick that he's back there in that bush and you can kind of see him. <laughs> And then, okay, well, I could try to get him with my telephoto, but probably not. My best shots are going to be if he is in some reasonable close proximity, right? And it just turned out we're not allowed to approach him to get close to him, but they were, there were so many little guys that were so curious. One guy ran right by me and rushed by me, and I was like, ah, oh, like starstruck. <laughs> so, yeah, like definitely the most amazing moment just to see the nurse they're young like the looks on their face and the facial expression they have that you know the highs the lows the sad i didn't see any angry <laughs> thank goodness but um i'm sure there are but it's not like very like many other animals where it's really hard to read they are so much like humans where you're smiling or you're laughing or you're scared you're curious when you see their eyes, when you see their mouths, what they're doing with their hands, how they're interacting with their young, how they play, how they eat. I think it's so relatable. And I think that ability to relate us to something so wild is so powerful. I think it would be an awesome experience. And I think everything you just said is perfect. Anybody I've ever talked to, you don't need a lot of glass when you're in there. You just need to have something with a medium type range. And a lot, oftentimes they're coming to you, right? Because they are curious. They see a lot of people. I mean, if even if it's only 10 a day, you figure there's several days in a year that these animals are going to see you, see people. So they're, they're going to be still curious to kind of know what's going on. So you just don't need to have too much up in there. And I'm sure you got you can get some incredible stuff even with just one hour, right? Yeah, I think if I were to go in today with the gear that I have, I would probably bring a 24 to 70 if I can only pick one lens that would probably be the lens I would bring. It's easy to work with. You can shoot wide to get the environmental shot. If they're close, you can zoom in to get some nice portraits and stuff. It's fast. You can get the bouquet in the back. <laughs> but it also depends. Like, I was in Rwanda. Some people shoot in Uganda and then Congo. Um, believe the Congo bush is much, much thicker. <laughs> like, you're walking through not the side of a mountain. Like, it's jungle. <laughs> And in Uganda, the trees looked a lot different. Like my cousin did it in Uganda and I was just like, it wasn't as lush and as green, but there was a lot of places for them where they were kind of hiding. Like they seemed a little bit more further like away. I don't know if they're as used to that interaction at the time, but he went, I'd say 15 years ago. So Right. So it's just a different time and a different place. You've done so much. Let's get into some of these other stories. I mean, some of the stuff you've done in the Arctic is awesome. I just... I just did a couple of searches on the internet to find out, read some stories about you, and I found a couple of interesting articles. And one, you were talking a lot about the Arctic stuff. Can you just give us a little idea of what that was all about and what you were doing up there and what the 
project was all about? After I went to Antarctica, me and my mom went to Antarctica together. <laughs> and she was like, we're in Canada. Wouldn't it be awesome to go to the Arctic? And I started looking out trips to the Arctic. And I'm like, I can't afford to take you there. <laughs> it's way more expensive than Antarctica, even though it's so close. But it was something that has always been in the back of my mind. And I think when you hear the story of climate change, I think there's nothing more powerful than actually seeing that front line action. And that's our Arctic, I find. Like, it comes and goes the sea ice. And during May, it, right now, I'm supposed to be there. It's the uh, flowage season. So that's when you start getting uh, the melt-off part of the ocean, first melt-off. So you get an edge where the ice and then the ocean. That time period, the CLG starts blooming and everything comes up. So fish start coming, seals start coming. Then you get narwhals and belugas and you get bears come in. So it's the line of life up there. That's what I was really wanting to go and photograph. I approached a few companies <laughs> and I got two pretty decent offers. But John Davidson from Bath and Safaris was just, he had this spirit about him and he was just dry humor and really, really to the point. He was like, I don't know if you're tough enough. <laughs> for this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I am no idea right he was like do you want a snowmobile with me from clyde river to pond inlet and i'm like yeah for sure like i'm just i was that yes girl right at this time for sure no problem i could do it no idea and he showed me what like a true expedition was like we became a pretty good team there was me him and uh inuit guide named noah we commuted i think it's like 300 miles 400 miles on snowmobile on the sea ice. I was getting a little worried because I landed and one of our snowmobiles was broken. <laughs> so we lost a few days having to like pull gears, <laughs> bearings off and trying to find parts that didn't fit <laughs> and shimmying it on. Um, I earned some street credit. I could use tools. <laughs> They're like, okay. <laughs> and then knowing that that snowmobile might break down on that commute, this commute would take us two and a half to three and a half days, let's say. That was what we were anticipating. So if it broke down at any point, you're calling rescue. <laughs> if it broke down, we have to try and fix it on the ice. So we were like sitting there looking at, you know, all the parts and we're like, well, what are we gonna bring? <laughs> it was interesting. I was getting a little worried on the trip too. We did, I didn't see a bear the whole commute. I saw lots of tracks. I'm sitting in the back of a Comatech, like bump, bump, bump. We would ride like nine to 12 hours a day and finally making camp in Pond Inlet by, it's called Button Point, beside another group, the Black Feather group, which is down. And then they left me actually. They were like, hey, like, do you want to come to town to get the balloon? So that we had a balloon too, where we got a balloon across the Arctic. John, John's a balloon pilot as well. So, their selling factor to go with him <laughs> for me so i was like oh okay he's like oh do you want to come to town or do you want to stay in camp and at that point like noah my inuit guy's like of course you're gonna to want to go to town you've been like no shower nothing like of course she's gonna to want to go to town i'm like no i'll just stay here i'm like i'm not gonna see anything out there in town i'm like i'm here for animals i want to stay at camp so noah comes to my, my tent, I guess. And he's like, gives me a knife. And I'm like, what do I do with this? He's like, oh, you know, tap a bear on the nose. I'm like, <laughs> right. 
tap a bear on the nose. <laughs> so yeah, I stayed in camp by myself that day. And then the black feather guys came and they're like, are you getting out there yourself? Like they're like, here's some bear spray, right? And then um these Inuits came by and they're like, Do you have a gun? And I'm like, No. They're like, You're here by yourself without a gun? And I'm like, there's seal over there. So they just kind of hung out with me waiting for the seal to come because they were hunting. So I don't know. It was fun. It was a lot about learning, I think, what an expedition is truly about. I don't think I've, I understood that, I think, until that trip. Like the improvisation and... What yeah. kind of wildlife encounters did you end up having? Uh, polar bear, obviously, um, and narwhals and beluga. And from a very far distance, we saw a bullhead whale, like really far out. Some people said that they saw a lemming, like another camp said they saw some lemmings. It was crazy. Polar bears are not as well camouflaged as you'd think. On they're yellow. They're really yellow compared to the snow. Yeah, almost like a mountain goat. They still, I mean, even though they're white, they stick out in the snow because yeah. of the, the algae, the lichens that they are around and rolling in, and that kind of thing. Now. The narwhal. So I was watching some behind-the-scenes uh, footage from Planet Earth or the making of the first Planet Earth movie. And they had every resource you can imagine. You know, got people on snowmobiles. They've got a crew in a helicopter. They had another crew that was an underwater crew that had submersible drones. It took them 30 days to get any narwhal footage. And your first trip up there, you managed to see There's, narwhal. So... The flowage season is probably like your best chance. They actually migrate along that edge and they're feeding along that edge. The easiest time and going into the summer, my friends have had great chances of seeing them just even on boats. I would say the guys told us that they were really, really sensitive to sound. So yeah, like we have snowmobiles, but you know, we park them, we're sitting at the edge and you just sit there. There's nothing going on. And you see a blow, like you see blows in the distance and you're like, we think they could be, they could be a whale. It could be a beluga. It could, we don't know what it is. And when they come closer, you can start seeing like, as they're breaching a little bit, you can see the, the, the spots and you'll know that that's a narwhal. Or if it's really shiny and white, then it's a beluga. But if it's really big, then maybe a bowhead, right? We're staying right at the flow edge and they're feeding, right? So they're just coming by. I think if you go during that time, you have a pretty solid chance to see them. Now to get that shot that Paul Nicklin got, <laughs> the one with the tusks coming up, and that's not easy because not all narwhals have tusks and not always are they like pointing up like this. Like it would be very foolish for them to just always be up like this. They'd get shot, <laughs> you know, or attacked. They've even said like the Inuit guys have said that they've seen like polar bears like grab belugas and, and narwhals like they're not the size of bowhead whales right so they can actually grab them and pull them out so yeah if that isn't easy um i didn't fly my drone i had a drone but i didn't feel comfortable dr flying my drone around the narwhals yet at that time uh i did fly it around the polar bear but i had spent several days tracking the same polar bear and he wasn't afraid of snowmobiles he was a very weird bear <laughs> Usually most of the polar bears, like, once they hear the snowmobile, they're off in a different direction. Um, this guy approached snowmobiles that were on. He was walking into the, the camps, 
actually one of the Inuit hunters had to scare him away with a gunshot instead. So I knew he wasn't going to be afraid of my drone. I just popped it up and got like a scenic picture of him walking away with his footsteps. But I wasn't too sure how narwhals would be. So I just decided to enjoy it. Like I shot it with my camera. Not great. It's not the shot that I wanted, but um, I think it was special enough to just be there. I just didn't want to do anything to unethical, I guess. Like I wasn't sure yet after the fact when I came back and I started reading about, you know, people shooting them from helicopters. I'm like, that's really loud, <laughs> you know, to be hovering above a pot of narwhals below. Um, if that doesn't affect them, I'm not sure. I didn't see the actual footage of them, you know, hovering above. We see the pictures, but um, if Nat, and I believe that Nat Geo and BBC, they, they probably wouldn't do anything unethical. So probably next time I would try my drone up there. I think that's a good thing to talk about because it is really tough with drones. It's tough to know. I mean, you basically just want to do what you did, right? You just don't want to do it. There's no sense in chasing something away or scaring something. And it is a, it's an object in the sky that is just a little different and it's enough to just put everything on edge. So I was talking with someone this morning and they were asking me if I shoot a lot of wildlife with my drone. Cause I do take my drone out a lot. It's fun to get establishing shots, especially if you're doing a lot of video, it's a really cool tool to have out there. But I told him, I said, you know, it's just, I'm just not comfortable flying for one. I think you're going to stress wildlife out. And then you've got, with like in Colorado where I'm at right now, there's harassing wildlife laws. And I guarantee you any game warden out there would give you a ticket if you were trying to fly over a herd of elk or if you were flying, you know, on some sheep or mountain goats or something. So I always err on the side of just not shooting and just either shoot from the ground or just enjoy the experience, right? But in the Arctic, I could see where if you got high enough, you're going to get some pretty striking images, even if you just have like a white dot of a bear, you know, like the one you got. It's pretty cool. And you know that that's not going to, especially if you know that bear and you know his behavior and he's not scared of snowmobiles. It's like, I'm probably going to be pretty safe here to get this shot. Yeah. And you're just doing stills too, right? You're not doing video or you're following, you know, and just constantly doing all this stuff. Like, I just kind of like, trolled him a little bit from a distance and then there was another time when he was in the water and I popped my drone up and what I did was like just fly it out there but pretty far away from him and then just left it there and just hoped <laughs> that he would be curious enough to come and take a look <laughs> which he did but yeah like I knew that for whatever reason the noise didn't bug him it actually made him want to check them out more curious yeah it was just a, and it those bears can be pretty dangerous right so that's why the hunters were a little weary about him being so close to camp and then wanting to come and explore camp. Not my camp, but um, they were right by, right on the flow edge. Uh, none of the southern guides ever have their camps that close to the flow edge anymore. They've had accidents. <laughs> like? Uh, rescue accidents. Like there, there was a camp that floated away. <laughs> that's what I was wondering. Pretty much if you imagine you're on the flow edge and the ice goes on for miles until it hits land, but it calved off from the rest of it and it started floating. And so when these guys woke up, they're like, where's the land? <laughs> and they had a call for rescue, helicopter rescue. So I think a lot of the Southern guides now stay pretty close to, um, in Pond Inlet, they'll stay close to Violet Island. And then we snowmobile out to the flow edge every day. And how fast is that? 
Ed's changing. Do you see daily changes? Yeah, like hourly, I would say, depending on the tide, um, depending on the day, the wind. All of a sudden, it could be closed in, packed with ice, like you can't see water, just chunks of ice everywhere. Or it could be clear and clean, like ocean as far as you can see, and just a beautiful clean edge, right? But last year, the edge was the biggest. My guide said he's been doing it for a very long time. He's never seen the edge so open, so big. And these guys had expeditions planned into second week of June. So I think they had one or two expeditions. And there were groups that were saying that they were considering canceling their expedition because the ice was melting so fast. I think last year they broke records up there for um, how warm the spring was and how fast the ice is melting. That was similar in Alaska too last year. We had gone up in March, Michael and I, to photograph eagles around uh, Homer. And that's basically what they were all saying was that it was very open for the time of year and unseasonably warm for that time of year. Melt off or the runoff came very early last year. And I haven't heard anything this year. Well, even in Anchorage, it was like 90 degrees in July. You know, it's yeah. a record temperature for Anchorage. And then I was talking to somebody up there this week, and they said they're, they're predicting warmer than normal again this year up there. So The summer this year, Antarctica broke all kinds of records as well, like on both sides, right? Um, I think, I don't remember what the temperatures were, but they broke it on the mainland, and then they broke it on one of the islands where they actually have monitoring for temperature. And yeah, it's... It's sad. It's really, really sad. In Antarctica, especially, I just posted a picture of king penguins. Anything sub-Antarctic, it's going to be a huge problem for them, for the chicks, for the parents to get food back. Like that cold front is where all the food is, right? So um, as the temperatures warm up, that cold front is moving further and further towards Antarctica. So all those sub-Antarctic animals that need to lay eggs in warmer areas, they have to swim a massive distance. like an even larger distance to come back to feed their young, right? It's certainly something to bring to light because I think there's a lot of these things that unless you're doing what we do, you're not exposed to that. I mean, you get a little bit from National Geographic. You'll see a little bit on the nightly news, but it's so top surface stuff. You just like what you just said. I mean, I don't think anybody comprehends how far a penguin has to swim from traveling, from going to get the food and bringing it back. I mean, we're talking astronomical distances for a little bitty penguin to go i mean they're not that small they're pretty big penguins but it's crazy well like from let's say south georgia to antarctica it took us like two to three days sailing uh in really rough water so that poor little penguin i don't know how long it takes them to to do that commute back and forth (laughs) yeah when i was in antarctica we actually had king penguins on the peninsula which was very unusual I mean, because we didn't go to South Georgia, so we weren't going to, you know, everybody was like, you're not going to see king penguins, you're not going to see any of this stuff. But we get down there, and sure enough, there are some there. And it's, you know, who knows what happened? Did they get caught off in a storm, and then they just went, you know, went to a certain place, and there there they were? But it was kind of unusual. That was in, like, 2000, the year 2000, so 20 years ago. So, you know, way different conditions then than it is now. So who knows what how it's all going. But I think doing what you're doing and talking about these and taking pictures of these kinds of things is so important. And especially with with the tools we have nowadays. And like you said, you're a, more of a storyteller than a photographer, a videographer, a drone 
pilot, you use those tools to become that storyteller and telling these stories are what is important for people to understand and, and see out there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the ways, like I know where my weaknesses are when it comes to getting that information out. And definitely it's the images. Like uh, I think I could be a better photographer, um, work on my videography skills. Those are the areas for myself I know I can work on. So I was talking to another photographer, Dave Stanford, and he's like, I think you're always going to feel that way. No matter how good you get, you're always going to feel like you can get better. That's what I love about photography is I've always been the person that had to perfect whatever it was that I was doing. In photography, you just can't because once you think you've achieved perfection, there's a whole other level. And that's the beautiful challenge of it. It's just not anything that you're going to conquer. And then if you do conquer the technical aspects, then you have to improve your storytelling. So you bringing that strength to the table already, that's not something necessarily that you need to work on where, you know, somebody else might be approaching it from the technical side, but they're just not a good storyteller. They get great images, but it captures one moment, but it doesn't tell you where they came from, where they're going what they're doing, why they're there, you know, all those types of things. And I think that that that's the beauty of it is that, you know, it's kind of a competitive field, but at the same time, we don't necessarily need to be all that competitive because we all approach it from just a little bit different perspective. And I find like the community in wildlife photography is super supportive. Like I say, I, I do some hiking adventure photography and all that stuff as well. And, and it's a different, it's a different community. It's, like all the people I've met in wildlife online, you know, everybody's there to help you. You ask, you know, a question. They're not going to be like, oh, you know, I'm not going to tell you. They'll comment. They'll be like, this is a, a great company to go with. They're ethical. You know, when people do great work, when people are doing the right things, you know, talking about the right things, we're all very supportive of those things, right? Like it's not like, um, oh, why are they doing better than I am? Or it's... I don't find that I feel like the wildlife community is as competitive, I guess, in that sense, in the sense of you're stealing my print sales or something like that, you know? Yeah, I I think it's changed a lot, right? So when I first started that, well, it was pretty competitive because it was all about print sales or it was about selling images to magazines. That whole world has changed so much. And with all these social media networks now where everybody's willing to just put their images out there for for education and for just putting them out there and not necessarily looking to make money that has made it so much better. And you are willing to share. And it's great because I think it's just a more of a powerful message to put out to the general public too, because you want them to have the same passion we have for the wildlife. And the only way they're going to have that is if they're educated or if they get to see a King penguin or if they get to see a, a mountain gorilla. So I think that whole world's changed. The other thing, what you guys were talking about earlier was, you know, you think you perfect something. All you got to do is go look at Instagram and you see 10 pictures that are way better than any picture that I got, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, well, I still got a lot to learn because these people are just cranking out awesome work all the time. So that's a cool thing about the social media too, is it can give you ideas. It can motivate you. It can do all these different things. If you're into it, you're going to get out there and you're going to try to, how can I make this shot way better? How can I do something besides just a portrait? You know, how can I involve the, the landscape? How can I tell the story better? The last, what, five, ten years has been pretty awesome that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I'd say like uh, when it came to landscape before social media, before all this stuff, like I would just, I didn't have the same interest when it came like wildlife. Yes. I want to shoot that picture. I want to, to capture the eyes and the glow and everything. But when it came to landscape, I didn't care. Like, I was just like, this is my experience. Snap, snap. Like, keep on hiking. And I think social media has, meeting some people, having them show me how to do <laughs> landscapes better. I think it's the landscape that showed me how to do the, the storytelling of, you know, when you're on a hike and you're, you're preparing for the shot. And being able to shoot that landscape, I think I shoot differently now as well. When I shoot wildlife, I don't always go in for the eyes and like the you know that smile or that the close-up telephotoed shot I'll think and I'll be like okay well like let's zoom out and let's zoom out even more and it's not usually the the shot I think most wildlife photographers are always going for that environmental shot which I think is super important because to tell that story of how are you going to save this animal it's not about saving this animal it's about saving its environment because that's what's killing it. To be honest, like, yeah, there are poaching issues, but the number one killer of animals, extinction, biodiversity, is habitat destruction and fragmentation. So if we don't take an image of what we're trying to save, which is the environment, connecting people with that, I think it becomes hard for people to understand, how are you going to save this animal? How are you going to save this bear? How are you going to save this gorilla? It's not about putting them in a cage. And you can still photograph them in the cage. It's about keeping them in their homes, right? And in, in the wild. And yeah, I think shooting landscape has changed that for me to just zoom out. <laughs> that's an awesome perspective. And I think that's something great to hear, right? Because it, it is, I mean, as a wildlife photographer, or let's say as wildlife photographer or a sports photographer, you know, as I was coming up through the ranks, it was all about having the biggest lens. Right, which then limits those opportunities to do that kind of stuff, especially in the old days before any of these zooms. You just had a straight up 500 or straight up 600, and your chances of getting any landscape was very, very slim to none. I mean, you could do it, but only on certain situations. Now, with all these zooms and then with having the ability to put on that small lens, I mean, it just opens up so much more and so much better storytelling. Yeah. The one thing that I, I have seen in like, growth I guess in my photography when it came to wildlife is just trying to take the skills that you learn in landscape and approaching wildlife in the same manner so do you choose your locations differently now based on that knowledge or it's hard to get some of those situations where you can properly show the the environment with a specific species right you know if you want to go to a national park and you shoot a a big wide landscape of of elk let's say in Rocky Mountain National Park it's really hard a lot of times to keep a road out or keep people out or keep a car out or keep a cabin out or if you want to show a pristine environment now it can be done of course you all you got to do is hike into the woods a little ways but but it's do you choose your locations based off of that knowledge and that storytelling that you want to tell and the species that you want to tell the story about I think when it comes to wildlife that's the difference between scenery and and wildlife is that I I can't plan where the bear is going to be. I can't plan where the elk's going to stand. A lot of it is actually just, all right, like we're going to go and we have these elements. <laughs> you know, we, we might have a pond, a lake, we have mountains and let's see what happens. Cause I can't like 
I don't bait, you know, it might not show up and I'm just shooting scenery then today, right? Which is fine. You can hike in, you do whatever. But at the end of the day, like if the wildlife doesn't show up or if they're not standing in the position that you planned, you, you have to be flexible about what you want to, sh- how you're going to compose in the moment, especially if you are on an expedition, you have limited amount of time. I think that's when you're like, all right, everything that I had planned, let's throw that out the window. It's now white out. So what am I going to shoot? Or can I even shoot? Are we going to get off this boat today? Um, so I think in some aspects, wanting to shoot a certain species or a certain landscape, absolutely, I pick that. But when it comes to wildlife, there's a, so much that, you know, I could have a shot list, but honestly, it's really up to the model. <laughs> That's the good thing about wildlife, too. That's why I like shooting wildlife more than people is they're never late. They're always <laughs> on time. They never complain. They're just doing what they're doing. Well, I don't know if they're never late. I don't think you could. They never show up. They might be late for us, but they're never late for them. They're right where they need to be, right? <laughs> That's very true. They're late to show up in front of the, the lens, though. In front of the camera. They're they're late for our schedule, but not for theirs. Right. And that's what I enjoy the most about it is just being a part of their world for however limited amount of time that I'm able to do that. Yeah. So. And it's always different, always unpredictable. It's a, it's a great challenge, I think. And I think every expedition, you grow a little bit more as a photographer. Oh, for sure. Well, I tell people all the time, starting as a wildlife photographer really improved my photography for everything else, too. So I do a lot of commercial work, too, right? Because you got to pay the bills. And if I'm shooting a bear or a well, an elk or whatever, you got to get what they do when they do it. You can't say, hey, let's do that again, only could you put your, your head this way or whatever? You can't do that. You, just, you get what you get, right? So when I go out and shoot some of the sports or whatever I'm doing for some of these clients, I love it because I just take that same approach and I don't have to reset anything. I just get what I get and they love it. They like what I'm doing. And I think it's just all that experience over time that of just, okay, I just got to get it. And in fact, I do it to a fault sometimes because I do have models in front of my lens that I could have them do the same thing 10 times if I wanted. But a lot of times I'm like, no, I got it. And and the people I'm shooting for, they're like, well, don't you want to try that one more time? You know, so it can be a fault too. But I think it's way, way, way better to start doing that where it's an unpredictable situation. It's just something that you got to get. And then if you have that skill, it's going to serve you for a long time in, in any facet of photography that you want to do. Yeah, I I think in general, like if I if I were to say how I'd approach a shoot with wildlife because we all plan our shoots to some degree, right? Like if I'm going to see a polar bear, I have an idea. Some of the images that I want to get and, or with a penguin, like I want them coming out of the water or I want them jumping or walking, sliding on their bellies. You have some ideas and I think it's important to, to also plan for the unexpected in a sense that you, you have time for it. So you have your shot list knock that out that's your bread and butter that's your your easy money shot right but then after that always give yourself enough time like always give that's like assuming everything goes well it rarely happens that way or you get your shot list but always give yourself enough time to then you know play around with the environment 
with different angles, if you can move at that point, different focal lengths. There's something about being out there and seeing the animal in front of you that changes your perspective. Like you might have had all these ideas of these images in your head, but when you get there, all these new things come up, right? Like you just have to take a moment, stop, and just like kind of put that camera down just be like, all right, let's be creative now. And like, look, look, let's look at this environment. And what can I do differently now? <laughs> Completely different from what I was, you know, sitting on my couch, thinking up shots. Well, we talk about it all the time where if you have, well, we used to talk about it all the time. You know, if you're going to go to a location, if you can schedule seven to 10 days, that's the best because that gives you time to get the, the shots that came from your couch you know, those standard shots, your, your portrait, but you always want a little bit of extra time to deal with the unexpected or deal with being super creative, or you happen to get a really cool weather that just adds a whole nother element to the whole thing. But a lot of times you have to have time for that. And I always like doing it on the, the back end of a trip, if at all possible, because it just gives you time to look at everything and all the potential things. I do it a lot with bears in Alaska when you're shooting fishing bears and, and you're in the same spot, you just start seeing the same habits as some of the bears or you see how the light's hitting something in a certain way on a certain part of the day. And if you give yourself enough time, that really produces the magical shot. Yeah, I think that would be like my ideal situation, like getting several days with an animal. But when it came to polar bears, I didn't know if I was going to see him again. You know, like I didn't know if he was going to linger around. It's not like Churchill where it seems like you're going to see a bear. You might not see him up close. You're going to see a bear. You might see multiple bears. But in the Arctic on the flow edge, like on the sea ice, there was a solid week <laughs> I was traveling and I didn't see a bear. I got to my camp. I was at the flow edge. I didn't see a bear. And it wasn't until like the last few days it was like bear, bear, bear. Like the same guy just kept coming around. All right, like I really lucked out think yeah wildlife in on the flow edge there it's it's unpredictable if you want to see a polar bear and that's your your end goal then I wouldn't say that that would be the expedition for you necessarily like you can go to Kaktovik uh you go to church it'll probably be more affordable it'll be more comfortable and you'll probably see a bear what I did uh the flow edge I would say it's it's a raw experience you're seeing the hunters beside you, you literally have to sit there. You might have to sit there for hours and hours waiting for something to show up. There's lots of birds, but like, you know, the narwhal or the beluga, someone from another community um, in Nunavut, they're like, you know, we see polar bears, but to see the polar bears with like the Arctic cordilleras in the background, that's something else. Like the, the scenery there, to shoot the bears is incredible. And then also to see the interactions between like how the Inuits live up there, how they live on the land, how, how they are with the animals. That's pretty incredible too. It's a raw, just really raw. Yeah. Well, it's real, right? Something that's gone on for hundreds of years, right? So it's, it's pretty cool to see and witness that kind of stuff. I was reading in one of the articles, you've been to six of the seven continents with Australia being the one that you haven't been to yet. What uh, what did you do in South America? Or was that on the way to Antarctica? Because that's that's what I did, is I got Argentina and Chile. South America is my favorite continent. I did my first backpacking trip out of um, university, right out of university. That was like my first trip. I went to Peru, Solario, 
Backpacked Peru did Galapagos. It was awesome. Things were really cheap and affordable. I did like a road trip down Chile. It took us a month to drive to Vila Higgins. That was crazy. We it was that was like just something that there wasn't very much written about it. Everybody that wrote about it was like anticipate a lot of upsets. They're <laughs> like anticipate that ferries will be down. Anticipate that roads will be blocked. And I'm like, but there's only one road. Like, what are you gonna do? And sure enough, like I. I arrived in Chaiten and we're about to just hit the road into Patagonia. And this lady's like, Ciro's, like, Ciro's landslide. And we're like, well, like landslides happen all the time, but yeah, like an entire mountain literally buried um, a town called Vila Santa Lucia. We didn't even see it until the end of our trip. It was devastating, but that delayed us by four days. So we were like camping in Chaiten for four days, waiting for a ferry to get around. And the whole road trip is just like road, ferry, road, ferry, road, ferry, all the way to the end. And there's no cell reception. <laughs> there's nothing. <laughs> you see a city, you buy your food, go, move on, go camping. It's just one month of camping in Patagonia. It's stretched out very few people see just because it's, it's not easy. It's definitely not the easiest. It takes a long time to get around there, but it's beautiful. And then Argentina and Uruguay and up around like Mexico and all that, Costa Rica. I don't know. I just love Latin culture. <laughs> they <Yeah>. don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So what has kept you from hitting the continent of Australia so far? You know what? I love koalas. Uh, I love koalas. I love quokkas. Um, I don't know, like, so like culturally, you know, Asia is very, being born in Canada and everything, like Asia, Latin America, but culturally it's so different. It's so exotic and, and luring, right? Um, when it comes to wildlife, like, I think right off the Lion King, you know, I want to go to Africa, you know, I want to see Happy Feet in, in Antarctica as a kid. In Australia, like, a lot of the koalas are captive now. Like it's it's quite hard, I think, to see a koala in the wild. And then the barrier reef, I dive, so I mean they deemed it dead. I'm sure it's still very beautiful. Like there's areas of it that's really beautiful, but it just seemed like something that I could always wait to do, I guess. Like it wasn't something that was changing. It's it's a very civilized first world country. So in that regard, nothing really is gonna change there. It's stable those road trips will always be waiting but i think i never anticipated that barrier reef to to be deemed dead so i think that was a big wake-up call that i should probably head out over there and do some diving before it's it gets any worse yeah mark and his family went down and they dove the portions of the barrier reef i think he said a lot of it was dead but then there was some there were some portions that were still kind of pristine but the pristine areas they let you view from a distance because they didn't want to have the same result. But yeah, he did say a lot of what he saw was dead coral. Yeah. And then the other aspect is I heard, and I think I, the first time I ever experienced it was maybe in Hawaii. It's like, it's one of those touristy places where everybody wants to go diving. You go there, you don't know how to dive. So you want to go diving anyways. And you get a lot of tours that just take you out to 
not that nice places. So you really need to do your research because they don't want you to go around like bringing all these newbies to a pristine place and then they kick everything, destroy everything. They have no buoyancy. They're crashing into everything. So they really hold your hand, I guess, through a lot of it. And uh, they might not bring you to some of the really, really nice places, which is unfortunate. And I, I totally understand it. So I have another question for you. You're a Polar Pro ambassador. Tell us a little bit about that. And what does that involve? What do you do with those guys? So, you know what? I really appreciate that they give me like that artistic liberty to do what I want to do. <laughs> Unlike a lot of the other filter companies that are, I guess they're more the classical photography filter companies like Nisi and Oya and those guys. Uh, those guys, I heard, require you to do a lot of, you know, before, after, before, after, right? Frankly, when I'm out there, that's not me telling a story. That's just me showing you a product. And that's not really me. And I, I, I didn't really have any interest in that. When I got my drone, I got Polar Pro filters and they were just the ones that fit the best. So um, I posted a few pictures and they posted one of my images and I kind of reached out to them. And they're like, yeah, like it's, there's no hard selling. Um, we want to encourage people to just get out, you know, get out, seize the adventure. The product is about gear that is made for adventure. It's gear that is, is made for the photographer that's on the go, right? So it's not about, you know, the hard sell. Look at this before and after and let's compare five filters like I'm not a tutorial person <laughs> or a technical person for that matter. Like I, I could tell you, I'm like, yeah, I don't really like the color of this. But when I'm out there, that's the last thing I want to do. You know, if I'm in the Arctic, do I really want to do before and after for you? <laughs> no, I don't. If you have time sitting on the sea ice with nothing to do, then you could. But right. But when they when yeah. when you want to take pictures, you want to take pictures. You don't want to do before and after. So we just did a video on a bunch of neutral density filters for video. And I've never used a Polar Pro actual like variable neutral density, but I have some buddies that have them and they seem like really nice quality pieces of glass. What's your experience with them? Right when I signed with them, I was, I did have trips planned. I just got them, uh, this quartz line series and they look amazing. I have yet to try them out. So I'm just going to be honest there. Um, But the glass that I have for my drone, I have, bought in other ones and then all my friends were like you gotta just bite the bullets spend the money and get the the polar pro ones and i was like okay fine because <laughs> droning was never like you say it's not really that bread and butter i don't usually take it out i wasn't going to spend a bunch of money on filters if i didn't know if i was even going to use them once i bought the polar pro ones they were like kind of like that game changer right for me and yeah their lifetime warranty for one and the other aspect is they fit <laughs> like you have a drone. Um, do you have Polar Pro filters or? Yeah. So I don't know if you've read many reviews on the filters for the drones, but there's a lot of brands that don't fit. Yeah. Like they don't go on properly. They they have weird colorization. It. I think there's only like a few competitors for for Polar Pro out there that, you know, between the fit the balancing for the gimbal and the like the weight balance, I guess, when you put them on and the, the quality of the lens. Peter McKinnon just signed with, or isn't that his signature filter is polar pro, isn't it? Isn't that the, yeah. 
I think he ha- he has a Peter McKinnon neutral density um, yeah. filter. Yeah. And then they have like the Summit series, and they have there's another one. Those ones are like the big setups, but they're apparently really easy to use. I haven't had my hands on those yet, but they're like you know the Lee and the Conklin. Those guys, they have those crazy filter kits. They have one too. It is pricey, but everyone that has used them love them. They're actually not as expensive as you know for the quality that you get from what i've heard i have some friends that are landscape guys and they've been using polar pro filters exclusively for the quality of glass that you get to put on they're really not that expensive the closest competitors probably double what the polar pro filters are are costing that's awesome yeah Yeah. like i say crazy technical but for me, like they are awesome. For the drone filters, I would say that they are on the more higher end, I guess, compared to the, the other competitors. But a lot of the competitors are, they're almost like, they make like phone, you know, like phone cameras or filters right. and attach. They're not really um, filter companies, I guess. Well, and sometimes on those filters, they're not traditional filters as, as in screwing it on the lens. Now, on the bigger drones, you can screw it right onto the camera, but some of these littler drones, you just, you know, it's just like a suction cup and just sucks right onto the front of that lens. So you want a good tight fit so that thing stays with your camera when yeah. you're not flying. What do you have? I have a Mavic and then I have the DJI uh, 4 Pro. Uh, is that what it is? The 4 Pro? It's got the screen built up on the remote. Yeah, I have the Mavic 2 Pro. I saw that in your article. I want to get that one, but now I'm like, uh, I've waited long enough. There's got to be a 3 coming out soon, right? Yeah, I'd wait. I'd definitely wait. So I think drones never interested me for the longest time until I saw that Mavic 2 Pro. And I was like, all right, I think this is it. Because like when you compare its size and portability it's nice like it's the same as your mavic pro right right but the image quality is workable i'm not saying that you know it will ever compare to our slrs but it's workable a lot of the drones it's either you're going big to make it workable or yeah you have a drone and you're never going to print anything from it right right now the littler ones will work great for video and but since you're doing mostly stills when they put a Hasselblad lens on that drone, that is that was the game changer, right? So, and they actually DJI bought Hasselblad, so they actually own that company. So I think that's how that that relationship came to be. I think it's like you said in your article that I was reading earlier. If they could give us some zoom with the quality yeah. glass, that's the next game changer, right? That's got to be the next thing. And they do. If you go with an Inspire drone, one of the big drones. You can get a little different camera on there. You can change lenses. You get a little bit more zoom out of it. But with the littler ones, like you're saying, for traveling, these little Mavics, you can't beat those. You just are limited to, you know, your focal length. The Mavic zoom. But the problem is the Mavic zoom uses the old sensor, right? Yeah, exactly. So you don't even want to consider that one. Not even considering anything smaller than that one-inch sensor because, I mean, to print to a meaningful size... Or like an artistic print if you want to go to that pushing that 24 to 36 size or even 16 inches your one inch sensor you need to do like panoramic stitching yeah. to make it usable right if you're taking one single shot that one inch sensor isn't even sufficing so I, ca- I, I can't do anything less some people are like oh there's not much difference for the zoom like if 
you're doing video, it probably wouldn't be. But if you want to print something from that Zoom for me, uh, I can't use it. Not until they upgrade that sensor. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. That drone is more for video. So if you're going to do video, that's what that was a good option. But I would still go with the Hasselblad version for video. You know, because I'm just yeah. not interested in doing that Zoom stuff. You're still dealing with a really high quality piece of glass and you're dealing with a good sensor. So it's just the way to go. But like you said in the article, hold out for the whatever the Mavic Pro 3 or whatever, because it's bound to be coming out soon, right? I think they were going to uh, release it. But another, an American company, Evo, I think it's called Evo Auto. One of those guys came out with a pretty stellar Skydio drone and it's nothing that I'd be interested in for the same reason it was I think the drone market is really targeted towards videographers and it is great for that but not for me right, right. for still it's still that Mavic 2 Pro for me and I think when they come out with that Mavic 3 I'm hoping because they can right they can make it so that there's a high quality zoom or interchangeable lens part where you can just maybe take out that gimbal part that camera and just put in another one right right well i can't wait to see what what's coming up next but with this covid thing it's a whole i mean everything's changed the schedules the putting out new products i know i ordered something not too long ago for a battery adapter that was supposed to ship in april and it's still not shipped and you can't blame the company you can't blame anybody it's just it's the no. way our world is right now so it's just something you got to wait for so what is on tap for you next? So with this COVID thing, you had talked earlier, you had some big plans. Obviously, they got canceled. What are you going to do throughout the summer? So even before COVID, I pretty much didn't plan much this year. I was like committed a month right now where I was going to be in the Arctic and I was going to bring a videographer. It was a collaboration with a bunch of companies to bring up donations. All of that fell flat, obviously. So I spent most of the year planning that. My friends were kind enough to get some permits for the Rockies this year and kind of got an extra one just in case I wanted to go. So I'll probably hopefully be doing that if our national parks open up. So I have permits for uh, Lake O'Hara and Isiniboine this year. Um, other than that, probably tracking some bears up here in Alberta, BC, hopefully out in Bella Coola. It'd be nice to see the grizzlies in Bella Coola. And then hopefully in the fall, I'm looking at maybe going up to Churchill. I need my bear fix. I need my polar bear fix. <laughs> That's a good trip. It's fun to see. And I think you can get way more dynamic pictures up where you were at. But like you said, it's limited. You don't even know if you're going to see a bear. When you go yeah. to Churchill, you know you're going to see bears. And if you get yourself seven days or 10 days, there's a lot of opportunity but you just don't get that remote. You you can, but it's it's different, right? You're driving in a car, and you get you could drive, and you can find a bear right on the side of the road, a polar bear. So Churchill's cool in that way. I heard that if you go to the Churchill landfill, it's really good for polar bears. We didn't ever have to do that. There's a road that leads out of Churchill, and you can just travel that road, and it's like 20 miles. And did you go with Alex? No, we just did a trip on our own. I had some buddies from Canada and they'd done it before. And they're like, okay, here's where you rent the car. Here's where you stay. Here's what we do. And, uh, you know, and it's hard to rent a car there because there's just, I mean, it's so remote that you can't just, there's not a Hertz or an Avis car rental place. You're just renting it from some gas station. And we got like a 20 year old pickup that was beat up bad. It just didn't do anything. The heater didn't work. It only worked on high or off. I mean, and the window, one one rolled down, one didn't. I mean, it's crazy. 
but it, it we didn't care i mean we were able to get some really awesome encounters with with polar bears safely and do it fairly inexpensively i don't know what i was doing i was staring at a map canada and i was like i just saw i don't know if you've ever heard of this place but it's called polar bear provincial park <laughs> i've heard of it but i don't know anything about it yeah like i'm like how is it that i'm canadian this park is in canada it's called polar bear provincial park and i have no idea i've never heard of it so i started looking at it it's this is southernmost um, population of polar bears, and it's in northern Ontario. It's pretty interesting. I really want to go. <laughs> so last year, I started talking to a guy that lives near the park. He's the ranger for the area, and hopefully I'll get to go up there. Probably not this year, but... It's always good to have things like that on your radar, right? Because you can say, well, next year we'll try it. Or as long as you're doing the research and you have this wish list, you can always check them off when the time's right. But I Googled this place because I saw it on the map and I was like, I'm just going to Google this place. Google was was cruel. Like, (laughs) there are no facilities. Pretty much don't come here. You need a permit to land a plane. The planes might not come back to get you (laughs) due to weather conditions for up to a week. And I'm like, so bring way more food than you ever need. Right. I was like, all right. So I don't know how there's no rental. There's I'm good doing that. I still have oatmeal in Michael's garage from two years ago. Yeah, if you're not picky, you can take a lot of food pretty cheaply and lightweight, but you're going to eat the same thing for a long time. Yep. Yeah, so I was lucky, I think, because it, it would have been impossible to, to land by a plane and not have anything. Like, you bring your food, but then you have no vehicle. You have nothing, right? You have yeah. no resources whatsoever. And to track polar bears by foot in a massive provincial park, I think it would be a challenge. And then to get back, I, I don't know. So anyways, I did find a guy and he's like, yeah, I have an ATV. We go out in ATVs. Like there's days where you see 200 bears. I'm like, what? Really? Oh, yeah. That'd be kind of cool. Especially if you have access to an ATV like that. You know, not you, but going with a guide or somebody that has that. I mean, that's a lot of the experience in Alaska in certain places where you go for brown bears. You know, they'll pull you around in an ATV and they're just taking you from one spot to the next where there's bears and you just, you don't even have to hike to them. But they do that more for safety for the bears than they do for human just laziness. They just want to keep the situation maintained the same all the time so these bears know what to expect. Well, I think it's also like, the fact that it's these are polar bears and just like Churchill, they're coming to land to pretty much fast. So they are hungry. They are agitated, probably. I don't think you, you really want to be camping. It's not a good idea to be necessarily pitching a tent beside a polar bear that is fasting nope. <laughs> from seal meat. So uh, it's different in the Arctic. It is definitely different. Like, I don't think they have any interest in eating you during the time that I'm there. There's narwhals out, there's seals out. That's kind of what they want to eat, right? But in Churchill, I think one year they went crazy on the goose eggs, I heard. And then just a matter of a day, they were just popping them like Skittles, like 200 eggs a day. (laughs) Well, you know, I tell people that all the time too, when they talk about, you know, they'll see a bear picture and it's a close-up picture of a bear, a brown bear, let's say, or a polar bear. With the brown bears, we're up there generally filming them when there's plenty of food. You know, they're, they're fishing for salmon or they're eating berries or they're doing all this stuff. You know, they're not looking at us as a food source. It's when you go when they don't have food, like you're saying, after they've been fasting all summer, 
Yeah, I mean you're you're high up on the menu if if they can get a chance. And and when I was there in Churchill, you don't go out by yourself. If you were out by yourself, you could tell those bears would eye a single person walking. If you were with a group, you were pretty safe and they just wouldn't deal with you. And you could be just walking 20, 30 yards from one truck to another. And But if there's a bear around, you get their attention. Yeah, I'm excited to see the environment up there. I think it'd be a completely different experience, right? It is. It's awesome. It's If you could do it, I would do it. Like being on the ice, I think that's, a different experience like they're kind of in that hunting mode or looking for a mate mode kind of thing and then to see them on land it's more like to see the sparring bears i've seen some pictures of like you know the larger cups not the little guys but the mothers with like the little guys i don't know i'm excited hopefully i get to go up <laughs> yeah i hope you do too you'll have to report back because i want to hear about your trip jenny again we appreciate you taking the time to visit with us tonight where can people find you if they want to see your work and, and read some of the stories? And, and don't just look at the pictures when you go to Jenny's page. Read the narratives as well because she's got a lot of great information in there. And that's a good portion of the story as well. But where can people find your work? As of right now, it's just on yeah, on Instagram. So J-Dub Captures, J-D-U-B-C-A-P-T-U-R-E-S. Cool. Well, definitely keep us posted. Maybe if you go to Churchill, we should get you back on in like what? You'll be back in November or December. And uh, I'd love to hear about your experience. And it was a blast talking with you. I, I learned all kinds of stuff and I love your stories. Oh, thank you. It was awesome. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Sing along to the radio. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way.